Well, the next uh, three weeks, uh, and then including last week, four weeks total in December, uh, I mentioned that we're going to be specifically looking about how God in His infinite wisdom uh, has designed this most ultimate of storylines, this ultimate epic drama that He has written and authored and designed. We started our year out in the beginning of this year with a series that we would dip in and out of throughout the year called Wisdom Cries Aloud, Seeking Truth in a Noisy Culture, just kind of taking little breaks throughout the year just to hear uh, how God's wisdom breaks through just kind of all the, the fog that's in this world uh, that uh, is, is the wisdom of the world. And so this year we wanted to end the, the year with this Advent series with the same title, Wisdom Cries Aloud looking at how God's wisdom broke into this dark and cold world in a very profound way 2,000 years ago. And we left off last week looking at how God's wisdom uh, was revealed in his decision to reveal himself by creating, that he chose to actually reveal himself, and that this choice to create showed and put on display both his power, his might, his intelligence, but also his wisdom, and showed how profoundly wise he is, the depths of his wisdom. But as I mentioned towards the end of the sermon last week, this creation would not remain perfect and uncorrupted, but rather the, the pinnacle of his creation, which is us, humankind, made in his image, made a disastrous decision to rebel, shattering that perpetual peace that tranquility and the joy that really ruled the earth. And so the, the question I posed last week was, does that then prove that God's choice to create was actually foolish? After all, as I had mentioned, if any of us made some big decision, went on some big venture and it totally epically failed, we would be seen as foolish. We'd have egg on our face. And we would be seen not as people who are wise, but actually people who are quite foolish. But in this case, when we look at this tragedy of what we call the fall, we see it in light of a grand scheme, a larger picture from beginning to end. We actually come to realize that God's profound wisdom is actually weaving itself in and through even the darkest parts of human history and redemptive history. And so today we look at this second chapter of these four chapters that I mentioned, these four chapters of creation, fall, next week will be redemption, and the final week will be the restoration so today we're going to be looking at the fall and how God's wisdom is seen weaving in and through the fall. So let me pray, and then we're going to be jumping into Genesis chapter 3. And I'm going to ask the Lord just to lead us and guide us and teach us this morning as we open up his word. Father in heaven, we are thankful and amazed at the depths of your wisdom when it even seems that there is no wisdom to be found in some of the tragedies of life, the hardships, things that just seem so senseless. We know, and we know in faith, because sometimes we don't see your actual wisdom working in it at the moment, but we know in faith that your wisdom is somehow not only weaving in and through these things, but is actually weaving them together, creating this incredible picture, this incredible story throughout our life and the, and the story of, of history. But we need to have an eternal perspective. We need to see the way that you see things. We need to have your perspective, your wisdom to understand and believe in faith, the greatness of your wisdom working through the story of redemptive history as well as the story of our own lives. We sing songs throughout our week and on Sundays reminding us of our great and glorious future and hope, but we quickly forget those choruses and those verses we get stuck in the verse or the chorus that is just the here and the now. 
So help us, Lord, to to see with a, a, a longer view in mind. We need your Holy Spirit to work in us to do that, to open our eyes wider, our hearts larger, our minds deeper. Help us, O Lord. Holy Spirit, lead us this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray and ask all these things. Amen. So in Genesis chapter 3, we'll be starting in verse 1. Uh, going, we'll be going up until 13 for now, and we'll be looking at 14 and 15 and 16 here pretty soon. Starting in chapter 3, this is right after God created all things, created the heavens and the earth, created the animals, created man, created woman. And now we pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he, the serpent, said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Which just a little side note, God did not say that. She's adding to God's words. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Which was a sad and empty false promise because Adam and Eve were already in the image of God. But he says, you will be like God. And so he's adding his own element, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit, and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's a tremendous amount of information and amazing insight and wisdom we could go into in these verses. I and mean, these verses are so, so deep and rich with so much, but we're going to focus this morning, as tempting as it is for me to jump off into little rabbit trails, we're going to focus on the theme of wisdom. We'll first look at the story in itself just to see what's going on, what can be extrapolated about God's wisdom. But first we see one interesting phrase here that it says that Eve saw that the tree was good and it was desirable to make one wise. She saw that this tree was something that would bring wisdom. Looking again at verse 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she had a desire for wisdom on the level of God. So she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Satan convinced Eve that by an act of disobedience, she would become wise. But knowledge, just simple knowledge of good and evil, isn't what makes somebody wise. You probably know many people in your life who know the difference between good and evil. 
and they're not wise. So just the knowledge of good and evil doesn't make someone wise. Interestingly, Eve desired the same exact thing that Satan desired in his own personal history, and that is to be like God. A little side note about Satan, his previous name was Lucifer, an archangel in heaven, a glorious and mighty angel. And at one point in his history, he saw God and he thought, I want to be God. I want to be like God. I can do his job. And he desired to reach that elevation, that height of God. And so he rebelled and he took with him many, many angels that followed in his rebellion. They were cast to the earth and they were damned. And so now here he is tempting Eve with the same exact desire. You can be like God. You can be like God. His desire was to be like God and now he's using the same ploy to show her something that God has that she doesn't have, but she could have it. Now the faulty logic of both Lucifer as well as Eve is that they believed that rebellion against a righteous God would actually make them like God. But that would actually make them unrighteous. Rebellion, sin, does not make you like a righteous God. It does the exact opposite. Even if it were possible to become like God, the path would not be rebellion. The path would not be sin. But the reality is that no creation could ever become one with God in their own power and by their own wisdom. It's just, it's not possible. All of creation is lower than God. As I mentioned last week, God is transcendent above his creation. It's impossible for any one of us creation or any creation period to become one with God in our own power and in our own strength and wisdom. But the enemy deceived Eve convinced her that somehow God was withholding goodness from her, withholding something good that she needed for life, for happiness, for joy. And she desired to be like God, even though she was already made in his image. She became convinced that she needed just a little bit more to have real happiness, to have real fulfillment, satisfaction. She desired to be like God. The same exact sin that Lucifer fell prey to. Now, at first glance, as we see this crumbling before our eyes, this very good creation, this looks like an epic mistake. God could have remained perfectly content and happy and joy-filled with just himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, enjoying perfect fellowship, no whining, no complaining, loving each other, amazed with each other's glory and beauty, just in himself with no creation around him, it would be very good. It'd actually be very, very good. But he chooses to create, to reveal himself, and to reveal to created beings how great he is, and now it's broken. It looks like this foolish failure of epic proportion, but even in the quote-unquote, weakness and foolishness of God, if we're going to call his creation now breaking as weakness and foolishness, even in the weakness and foolishness of God's plan, he's going to be shown as unsurpassingly wise. But we hear the complaints. We've said these things, and we hear them from others. If God is good, then why is there suffering? If God is good, why do we die? If God is so good and so powerful, why did he allow the fall to happen in the first place? Why did he allow sin to enter in? And these are very good questions. These are legitimate questions, thoughtful questions. It's important for us to know and to believe that first of all, this was no surprise to God. The fall of humanity was not a surprise. He didn't come up with a plan B after the fall. Oh my goodness, what's, what's going on? I didn't see this happening. Now I've got to come up with some other plan to fix all this. We have to start with an assumption that God knew that this would happen. 
Because if God knew that this would happen, and if we, if we believe that, and we should start with that assumption, because if he's a true God, he would know all things and have power and control over all things, if he's truly God. And so if this true God is a true God, he not only knew this would happen, but he have control over this. And if he had control over this, then you have to assume that he knew somehow that this is going to work out for ultimate good. Because if he is a true God and he has control over this, and if he is all wise, then surely he would have just stopped it, not had it be part of the plan. He's not stupid. So we have to kind of start with the assumption that not only knew this would happen, but he has power and control over this. And so if he has all of that, why would he do something that would actually be foolish purposefully? Why would he do something if he knew it's going to be broken forever and it would actually be a bad idea? He would not do that. So we have to step back and just assume and give him a little credit that if he's a true God, there's something going on here. He must know something that we don't know. He must know something about the end result and how it's going to be so glorious and magnificent and it's going to blow everyone's minds. If he knew that the fall would occur, there must have been something going on in the background that was not being put on display in the moment. And I know we're talking about creation and the fall right now, but I want you to think about your own life right now too. That there are times in your life where in the moment it just seems like, where's God's wisdom in this? Is he not paying attention? Does he not see how much suffering I'm enduring right now? How can this possibly work out for good? But we have to believe in faith, not by sight, but in faith, that there is something going on in the background that we just is not being put on display right now. His wisdom is not necessarily being seen right now in this moment in our life. We don't see it, but we know and we believe. We assume with right assumption that God's perfect wisdom, perfect power is at work behind the scenes. It just hasn't been fully revealed to us yet. And at this moment in the story, this is the case. But we can know that somehow his wisdom is going to produce the greatest joy for his people and the greatest glory for himself. I think of any epic movie that you've ever enjoyed Good epic movies or good books, the best stories of true human history have plot twists and dark moments, dark depths that are always devastating in the midst of the drama, in the moment of a particular movie or a book. You just, you wonder how the hero is going to get out of this or how the good guy is going to win or you feel like all is lost. Your favorite character just dies off. And in the moment, you're going, what's the writer thinking? I hate the decision the director made here. But you just, you let the movie play out. And maybe it's, you know, there's a sequel or if it's a trilogy or whatever it is. And, and you have to patiently wait. You think of a couple of the most obvious ones. You, know, you think of Star Wars or the Lord of the Rings books, movies. You think of the first time you saw Star Wars and you saw Obi-Wan killed in the first act. You're going, what is George Lucas thinking? Or you think of how the second movie ended. Spoiler alert, okay? <laughs> it's been 40 years, though, so if you haven't seen it. Then. <laughs> but how the second one ends with Luke being defeated, his hand cut off, he's in the spaceship hospital, and it seems like Vader won, and you're left hanging, thinking, what is the director thinking here? Or you think of Lord of the Rings, Gandalf being killed, any other number of tragedies that happened throughout that whole series. And you just wonder, what is going on? How can you kill off that character? But at the end of the movie, the end of the book, no one calls George Lucas a fool. No one calls J.R.R. Tolkien an idiot for writing this part of the story or that part of the story. No one finds fault in these guys as they've written these stories. We actually call them geniuses by the end. We don't find fault in their writing. We don't find fault in their creation. Even though in the midst of it, it grips our heart. We might even shed tears over certain characters dying. 
And these are fictitious characters. We might even find ourselves angry sometimes at a certain director or whatever it is until the next movie comes out and then we find out, oh man, I did not see that coming. That is genius what they did in that second movie. But in the moment, we, we can't see it. It's darkness to us. It's a fog. But by the end, we praise their genius, their creative wisdom in crafting such an epic tale. And they become our favorites for decades. Similarly now with God. In the moment, in the moment of the fall, in the moment of your own tragedies in your own life, out of context, and in the moment, the fall or personal tragedy seems like a major failure on God's part. But by the end of the drama, that's why I love the songs that we sing that the last final verse somehow ends with just the glorious picture of what's going to be forevermore. I love those kinds of songs. Most of the old hymns were written in that way. Kind of walk you through really the three or four chapters that we're looking at these four weeks. The best songs I think that we sing end with the, the, the chapter of restoration. I mean, that's why we get so excited at the end of those songs. That's why the tension builds. We, start, we sing about the wandering hearts and we know that and that's where we're at right now. But we get to that last verse where we're looking upon the face of Jesus and it just seems like all is well in that moment during that song because we know that that is the ultimate truth. And so in the moment, the fall or personal tragedy seems like this is failure. But we know the end of the story. We know where it's going and we can trust that like these great movies and stories, we can trust that God's wisdom will be revealed. And we will be in awe of his great and glorious wisdom. It does not make sense to us now. We see dimly. We, we're looking through a fog at best. Sometimes, even as believers, it's like we're in the dark. But his glory, his genius, and his wisdom will be praised. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. But the difference between these great stories and these epic movies and this life we're in is that real human beings, real life, real death, real tragedy, we're not fictitious characters. We're not just make-believe characters in God's story. See, it's okay that we don't have empathy for the White Witch of Narnia or the Emperor in Star Wars. We don't have to have empathy for them. We don't have to have any kind of empathy for the Darth Vaders or anything. They're just, they're fictitious. But people are real. Your life is real. The tragedies that you go through, that your friends and family go through, those in your life who are lost, they're real. And your hearts break for them. And the George Lucases and the Tolkiens and the C.S. Lewises of the world can't actually enter into their creation. They merely remain as transcendent above and outside of their creation. They have no choice in the matter. They cannot enter into the story of these make-believe stories. They have to remain outside of their creation, observing from above, writing the story as they will, according to their wisdom and their genius. They write the story, but there's no way for them to enter into the lives of the people that they're actually writing about. That's the limitation, and that's where the analogy breaks off when it comes to epic movies and books and God of the universe. Their fictitious characters are completely unaware that there's a George Lucas. Frodo doesn't know that there's a Tolkien. And he never will. That's the difference between these genius creators who write these epic tales and the God of the universe who's writing this epic tale. This God of the universe, the author of the universe, the author of our faith, 
does not remain outside of the story. He doesn't just write the story and close the book and say, Let, I'm just going to watch them all on my big screen TV and see how this all works out and it's going to be a great story. He doesn't just sit above, transcend it outside and above his creation, looking down at us as if we're just simply his playthings or some kind of insignificant character for his own amusement. That's not what God is. He's different than all these fantastic authors. We're not just characters in a book of make-believe. No, church, we were made in his image. You were made in God's image. He knows you. He wove your innermost being. He mended you together in your mother's womb. It is personal for him. He spoke words and you were brought into existence. You come directly from his own heart. And he has an affection for us that goes beyond just simply us being a, a creation, a creative experiment. No, we're made in his image. And so as I had mentioned last week that this author is not only above and outside of his creation like these other authors, but he's also a God and an author who has chosen to be intimately involved with his creation, even involved intimately in its darkness and brokenness and suffering in the same way that we experience. And he makes a startling revelation as we continue in Genesis chapter 3 here. You see, there's another kind of advent that we see in the Bible here in this chapter. Advent means the arrival. And this time of year, we're talking about the arrival of the Messiah in the form of a baby. But there's a different kind of advent here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, church. It's the advent of the gospel. It's the appearance, the first appearance of the good news. We just saw creation crumble, and immediately there's an appearance of good news. Verse 15, this is God's response. When Eve says, oh, was the serpent, and everyone's blaming everyone, here's, the, here's God's response in verse 15. So we'll start in 14. Seeing what he says to the serpent, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And in verse 15, we see the gospel for the first time. I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall, speaking of her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God reveals a plan to them. He curses Satan, but then he reveals a plan that would actually spare Adam and Eve from the same curse that was just given to Satan. He says, I'm going to send you someone to crush this enemy and save you. I'm going to bring forth, your offspring is going to bruise his head, a mortal wound. Now you should understand that when these words are spoken by God, when the reaction of God's plan comes forth from his mouth, I mean, you understand, all of creation, all eyes, proverbial eyes, angelic eyes, all eyes are on this moment right now because creation has fallen. A new rebellion has occurred on the earth. We had a rebellion in heaven, now there's a rebellion on earth. All eyes are on this moment. What is God going to do? What's he going to say? And he opens his mouth, and when this reaction, his response and his plan goes forth from his mouth, his word 
becomes audible for all of creation to hear, to, to see what's going on in his mind. What's he going to do? This declaration of hope goes forth from him. It sends this supernatural and eternal shockwave throughout all of creation. He says, I'm going to come up with a plan. I'm going to send someone to save you. God is sending a savior. He's going to spare us. This almighty and righteous God that we were fearful of and we hid from. Church, no one saw this coming. No one saw this plot twist in the story. None of the angels in heaven saw this coming. None of the demons that had fallen saw this coming. Satan surely did not see this coming. His plan just backfired on him. He wanted to bring them down with him. And instead, God says, I'm going I'm to fix this for you. I'm going to send a Savior for you. This shocked every being in heaven and on earth. No archangel, no cherubim, not Satan himself, surely not Adam and Eve. This was completely unexpected, so unlikely, and I might even say seemingly unnecessary. Because check this out. I mentioned earlier that Eve desired the same exact thing that Lucifer desired when he was in heaven, and that was to be like God. And she, too, with her husband, rebelled against God's clear commands in an effort to be like God. They essentially were challenging his majesty and his glory and his, his sovereignty. It really was cosmic treason. They're declaring war on the kingdom of God. I'm going to be my own God. This creation is big enough for two gods, and I'm going to prove it. I'm going to become God. This is an act of war. No different than what Lucifer and his followers did. And God not only banished and condemned Lucifer and all those that followed him, but now also punishes him even more so beyond his first punishment, his first banishment. Now he punishes him for his work in deceiving Adam and Eve. Looking again, the Lord God said in verse 14 to the servant, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. He's already been banished and condemned in his initial rebellion. Now he's getting a further punishment. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. What's so fascinating about this curse that he gives the enemy, he gives him the exact opposite of what Lucifer desired. Lucifer wanted to be elevated with God. So what does God do here? He lowers him to be the lowest of creation, crawling on his belly, the furthest away he can get from God, eating the dust of the earth, he gives them the exact opposite. And church, let's keep in mind that this was a good, righteous, and perfect punishment. This was a good punishment. This was a right punishment. This was not an unfair punishment. This was right. This was justified by God. And you see, since Adam and Eve's sin is the same as Satan's, same as Lucifer's, all of creation would have expected nothing less from God other than his perfect justice to be enacted. His holy wrath, that's what they expected. Why would he not do that? That's what he did before. And it was good and it was fair and it was right. So all of creation's expecting the same thing to happen. The angels never probably gone, oh, Adam and Eve have no idea what they just did. We've seen this before. We know what's coming. We know what's coming. We saw Lucifer take our friends and they went and they were condemned. Adam and Eve just did the same thing. They've made a huge, massive mistake. And so they expected God's perfect justice, his perfect wrath, his unswerving desire to maintain peace and order in all of creation. They expected that. All of creation expected God to deal in the exact same way that he was justified in acting towards Lucifer and all of those holy angels at the time that are now unholy angels. But... God did not respond that way. Instead, he revealed a whole other side of himself that was previously unknown to all of creation. He revealed a side of him 
that no one knew about. He unveiled aspects of his nature that no one and nothing new even existed. For the first time ever, he revealed himself as merciful. Creation saw mercy. They'd never seen mercy before. They've seen justice. They've seen holiness. He unveils for the first time ever, he reveals forgiveness. They'd never seen that before. He shows for the first time ever unconditional love. There was no context for that before because everything was perfect before that. This was totally unexpected, church. Totally unexpected. But he can't just do this as just a simple act of clemency. He can't just send a rescuer and call it a day. He can't just sweep sin and evil under the rug and act like it doesn't exist anymore. He has to deal with it. Because he's a good God, he can't just banish evil into some corner. Something actually has to really happen. Sin really has to be dealt with. The sin and evil must be destroyed. Someone has to take the wrath of God Almighty. Justice must be served. You can't just let a murderer go free because justice must be served. And so God knows this. So something has to happen. Someone has to pay the penalty for the treason of Adam and Eve. After all, Lucifer had to pay for his own, his own uh, uh, disappointment, his own rebellion. These previously holy angels, they had to pay for their own rebellion. Someone's got to pay for Adam and Eve's rebellion, so who would this be? Well, Genesis 3 again tells us, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It would actually be another human offspring of Adam and Eve that would come and conquer but notice it says, it doesn't just say that he's going to bruise his head. He's not just going to give this mortal wound to, to Satan. But this man is also going to be bruised. But not a mortal wound. Not a head wound. But his heel will be bruised. This man is going to come. He's going to conquer. But he's also going to suffer. He's going to suffer. And it will be a man, offspring of the first traitors, Offspring from them would redeem them and would ultimately crush and defeat Satan, sin, and death. Adam and Eve have become corrupted. Now they need another to be born that is uncorrupted so that that man, that offspring, can live the life that honors God completely because only a perfect human could actually satisfy the expectations of God. But this man will have to suffer because the sins of Adam and Eve must be atoned for. And so he will be bruised. And so Adam and Eve are probably wondering in this moment, who could this man possibly be? No doubt that when they first had their, their first two boys, I mean, can you imagine? Pregnant for the first time, they're going, what is going on here? <laughs> and they've got a baby. You know they had to believe this is the Savior. This is our second chance. This is the one. He's not been corrupted yet. And we're going to raise him and we're going to teach him the ways of God and he's not going to go the way that we did. And initially they have two boys, Cain and Abel. And they're thinking, surely one of these is going to be the Savior. But eventually it becomes clear that no, that's not the case. The more righteous one, Abel, was killed by his own brother. Clearly he couldn't be the Savior even if he was a, a good boy because death had mastered him. Clearly, he's not the Savior. Death has power over him. And it's clearly, obviously, not Cain because sin had mastered him. Death mastered one. Sin mastered the other one. Years go by. Noah. Maybe it's Noah. It's not Noah. Maybe it's Abraham. Maybe it's Moses. Maybe it's Isaac. Maybe it's David. All of them fail. None of these offspring from Adam and Eve, none of it's working. In your notes, you can follow along with this because it's almost kind of a tongue twister. The problem, and I put this in quotes, 
The problem with this promised church is that since man is the only one who sinned, only man can atone. Man has to pay back God. The problem is that man could not atone for his own sin. Man cannot pay back God for his own sin because there is no man who can actually live up to that. That's the problem. That's the first problem. The second problem is that only God could atone for sin because only God can live up to his own standards. The problem with that, though, is that God should not atone for his sin because it was not God who sinned against himself. God does not owe himself anything. Man owes, but man cannot. God does not owe, but God can. That's the problem. And so what's the solution then? The solution that God would reveal is that he himself would become a man. He himself would lower himself and humble himself and become one of his creation. The transcendent God <laughs> enters into the story, enters in personally, intimately. And, and, and he does this coming perfectly, living the perfect life demanded and expected by himself. And so by doing so, now he could rightly atone for sin by fulfilling this promise to crush that of Satan. And unlike Abel, death would not overpower him. And unlike Cain, sin would not overpower him. Him, being a man though also, could also come and rightfully receive the punishment due to man. See, God should not be punished because God didn't do anything. But because he's a man, now he can actually rightfully and justly take on the punishment due to his ancestors. God himself would lower himself and humble himself to do this, standing in our place condemned. And so in the midst of this fall, all of creation is rocked by the revealing and unveiling of God's wisdom as he unfolds this plan, revealing the beginning of this great and illustrious redemptive plan for mankind. He would not just remain as this transcendent God above and outside of his creation, looking down as if we're playthings, but he'd actually enter into it in a meaningful way, not even as an earthly king might do, or a celebrity, or a president who's protected by his own riches, protected by his own security personnel, living in a, a great palace, a great castle, a white house, a mansion in Beverly Hills, being ushered everywhere by motorcades. No, no, he, he does not come and say, All right, I'm God and I'm gonna do this favor for them. I'm gonna become a man, but I'm gonna be completely outside of suffering. I'm not gonna go through all that stuff that they're going through. I'm just gonna do it from a distance. No, that's not how he does it. No, he, he's, he's, he, he's not taking the easy route. No, he comes lowly as a baby born in a manger to poor parents. And he would endure the same pain and suffering and loneliness and scorn that we would encounter in our lives. Betrayal. Loneliness. This is completely unexpected. Completely unexpected. So improbable would the God of the universe enter into his creation in the manner that he did to do what he did for the purpose that he did? Church, we were given a savior, but no savior was offered to the angels. No savior was offered to Lucifer. And this is undoubtedly one of the many reasons why the enemy hates us so much. That's why he hates you so much. There's a deep jealousy that he has for you and for me because a Savior was not offered to him. But a Savior was offered to us. But before we start thinking, well, that isn't quite fair. No, no, no. A Savior was not obligated to him. God did not owe him anything, and he doesn't owe us anything. We're not obligated to have a Savior. His punishment was fair, and his punishment would have been totally fair for us as well. This is why 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about how angels long to look into the things of salvation. Because when, they, when they're expecting condemnation for all of humanity and mercy and grace and, and forgiveness are given, they're just, they're, they're marveling. We never knew this existed. We never saw, we've known God for, since our, our beginning. We've never seen this side of him before. 
And so it says that they long to look into the things of salvation because now they're trying to figure out God. This is a whole new side of him. This is fascinating. This is amazing. He's more glorious than we thought he was. And we knew he was glorious. We saw how he, how he judged the other angels. We know he's holy. But now we see he's merciful and compassionate. We're relearning God all of a sudden, longing to look into the things of salvation, amazed at the glory of God in a whole new way that they never saw previously. Ultimately, God would be completely shown as glorious and, even, and enjoyed wholeheartedly. And the reality is, is if he would have remained to be the only one in existence, he would have remained just as glorious. He could have remained just as gl- uh, glorious and enjoyed creation with just himself or uh, creation of even just the angels. He could have remained totally enjoyed with the creation of mankind had we remained sinless. But he could not be most enjoyed. He could not be fully enjoyed for who he is. We would not become nearly as satisfied or awestruck. This world would never be able to know the depth of his beauty, the mercy that would never have been able to be known, the grace that would not be known, his power that would only be seen in limited light. His goodness and righteousness would actually just kind of seem trivial if there's no reason to really be amazed by his goodness, if we never went through the fall. And so in his wisdom, as part of this great, epic, miraculous story, this story that he has authored, this chapter of the course of human history was designed to be a part of the story from before day one. This was part of the story because in his wisdom, he saw that this painful and excruciating turn of events would also produce the greatest possible display of his power, his righteousness, his love, his mercy, his grace, his peace, and every other divine attribute that he has. This display through the fall would catapult us into this ecstatic satisfaction and fulfillment and amazement of who God is when we see and behold him in his entirety. It's going to overwhelm us, church, for eternity, knowing all these aspects of God, bringing about an eternal wonder that would overflow from our hearts while never ceasing. So next week, we see and we're going to look at how this story takes its turn, how God walks through the story of redemption. We see the plan unfolding, but next week we're going to start to begin to see how he's going to actually enact this redemption, how this plan of redemption is going to come about, how he brings humanity through this process of redemption, what it looks like, why it has to happen the way it happens. And then our final week, in the morning of the 23rd, we'll look at the ultimate future, the restoration of all things, the consummation of all things, what our eternal future is going to look like forevermore. Let's pray and thank the Lord for this great truth, that it would find a home in our hearts as we prepare ourselves more and more for the celebration, the specific day of Christmas the arrival of Christ, the good news. Father in heaven, we are amazed at just uh, the, uh, the wisdom of this story. I mean, really, when you think of even the best stories and movies, they're all, they're all based around this story. A good beginning, a tragic fall, betrayal, redemption, and a reconciliation, a restoration. You are so profoundly wise and rich in your, your power, your intelligence, your goodness, 
And I know that I would not be able to see you for who you are, even the way I'm describing you, had it not be for this dark chapter of redemptive history to be part of the story. And I know that doesn't mean that all the tragedies in life are good in themselves. They aren't. Evil is evil. Tragedy is tragedy. But we can believe you and trust your word that when you say that all things work for good for those who love you and trust in you, we know that that's true. We know that your wisdom is going to be put on display for all of creation to be amazed at your glory when all is said and done. We know that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. We know that our future is good. We know that our future is better than even our best days here on earth. We know that as Christians, as believers, we know that this is the closest to hell that we're ever going to get. But let our hearts break for those in our lives that don't yet know you. Because right now we know that the other reality is that this, is, this life is the closest to heaven that they're ever going to get unless they know you. Unless their eyes are open to this amazing grace, this amazing story, this amazing truth. And God, you have put us here on this planet. You've left us here. Even after we become born again, you didn't rapture us into heaven. You left us here on the planet so that we might make your glory known. That this story would be made known to those in our lives that we love, that we know are lost. Have our hearts break for them, O oh Lord. You've put us in their lives for a reason, for a purpose. We're in the same boat as them. We're sinners in need of a savior. We're part of this fallen creation, just the same as them. Give us hearts of compassion that we, like you did, as you incarnated yourself into our world, help us to incarnate ourselves into their world, into their lives, to come alongside them, to love them, to show them and point them to the mercy that you have for them. Thank you, Lord, for your wisdom. Thank you that you show us your wisdom through your word. We thank you for the scriptures that you give us as a gift that we would know you. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We worship you, and it's in the mighty name of Jesus, the wise name of Jesus, that we pray and ask all these things. Amen. Amen.